It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I had a terrific time yesterday. Well, at least when I wasn't stepping around the cicadas that have invaded the Washington area. You know, little kids think they're cute. They're so ugly and disgusting. And the funny thing is... Uh, when you move around the area, there are some blocks and neighborhoods where these cicadas are everywhere. A lot of them just wind their dead. And others where they can't be seen at all. But it is just this sort of biblical plague. And I wish they would go back into the holes and not bother us for another 17 years. But the reason I say I had a good time is because fans of Media Buzz know that it's only been about a month now since I've been back in the studio on Sunday mornings as the pandemic starts to ease, and we'll talk more about that. But yesterday was the first time we were able to make use of more of the studio. We have this gigantic video monitor now, this wall monitor, where we can put up pictures and graphics, and it actually starts to look like an actual television show. Uh, and, you know, we've had to do lighting tests and other things. You know, television is a very collaborative enterprise. You don't just walk in and start talking. Uh, it takes a lot of people to get any show on the air, and particularly when you have a show coming back. We're trying to do some new things. We've got the, the this brand-new studio, so that's why I was in a rather upbeat mood. Hope that you had a good weekend. We have so much stuff to get to, more than the usual five stories, and I'm not going to kind of, you know, do the slow walk thing and, uh, tell you, uh, you know, what I had for breakfast. I want to get right into it. Story number one, the definitive Wall Street Journal piece on Bill Gates and what is happening uh, that precipitated uh, the divorce, which involves, you know, what, $130 billion or even more between him and Melinda Gates. Um, so last year, when Bill Gates stepped down from the board of Microsoft, I mean, the company that he famously co-founded from his garage that revolutionized the software business and the entire computing industry. Uh, he said he was doing it because, you know, he wanted to spend more time with his foundation. Uh, well, it turns out that wasn't the whole story. Uh, Microsoft board members decided last year that Gates needed to step down from the board while they were um, doing an investigation of his prior romantic relationship with a female Microsoft employee that was deemed inappropriate. People familiar with the matter said. So you can say, oh, this is all unnamed sources, it's just gossip. Well, just wait a second. Um, members of the board, this is how serious it was taken, hired a law firm to conduct this investigation in late 2019 after a Microsoft engineer alleged, wrote a letter uh, that she had had a sexual relationship with Gates over the years. Now, ordinarily you might say not that big a deal, except she works for the company, right? Um, so some board members decided it was no longer suitable for Bill Gates to be a director at the company, the company that is almost synonymous with his name. And he resigned before the board's investigation was finished, before the board could make a full decision or a formal decision on the matter, again, according to these sources. Now, here comes the Microsoft spokesman. Microsoft received a concern in the latter half of 2019 that Bill Gates sought to initiate an intimate relationship with a company employee in the year 2000. So this goes back two decades, at least the, the start of it. Uh, Here's more from the spokesman. Uh, a committee of the board reviewed the concern, aided by an outside law firm, to conduct a thorough investigation. Throughout the investigation, Microsoft provided extensive support to the employee who raised the concern. So there it is, on the record, from a spokesman from the company. Now, here's a spokeswoman for Gates himself. Quote, 
There was an affair almost 20 years ago, which ended amicably. She has said his decision to transition off the board was in no way related to this matter. In fact, he'd express an interest in spending more time on his philanthropy starting several years earlier. Um, so at that time, Gates resigned. This is 2020. He also uh, gave up his seat at Berkshire Hathaway, run by his pal Warren Buffett. Um, now, members of the Microsoft board, again, this is all from the Wall Street Journal. you got lots of other papers chasing it today. Uh, we're aware of the letter from the female engineer who demanded changes to her Microsoft job and also shared details of her relationship with Gates. Uh, other senior executives were aware of the allegations, according to this story. Also, the Microsoft board members were aware about Gates's dealings with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, who, of course, you know all about Epstein, you know, you know, the sexual predator. And Gates had a kind of a social relationship with him. Uh, and that unsettled some people, including Melinda Gates. So the dumping of Gates came not that long after he was reelected to the board. That was in December of 2019. But as more information was coming out, board members were concerned that Gates' relationship with the woman had been inappropriate, and they didn't want a director associated with this situation in the wake of the Me Too movement. Now, the New York Times, chasing this story, or had been working on a you know, related story, reports, for example, today, that back in 2018, Melinda Gates wasn't satisfied with her husband's handling of a previously undisclosed sexual harassment claim against his longtime money manager. According to two people familiar with the matter, after Gates moved to settle the matter confidentially, uh, Ms. French Gates insisted on an outside investigation. The money manager, Michael Larson, remains in his job. So all these tensions that were in the relationship that we didn't know anything about, all sort of coming out through the various leaks, through various reporters, uh, digging into this stuff. But the Time story has uh, some interesting quotes that the Wall Street Journal story does not have, and it is from this woman who is the spokeswoman for Bill Gates. And part of the reason maybe is that the Journal story is very tightly focused on just his leaving the board and the complaints from this one employee confirmed now by, at least in part, by Gates' own spokeswoman as well as the top PR person at Microsoft. But in the... Um, Time story, she says, it is extremely disappointing that there have been so many untruths published about the cause, the circumstances, and the timeline of Bill Gates's divorce. Your characterization of his meetings with Epstein and others about philanthropy is inaccurate, including who participated, says this spokeswoman. Similarly, any claim that Gates spoke of his marriage or Melinda in a disparaging manner is false. The claim of mistreatment of employees is also false. The rumors and speculation surrounding Gates' divorce are becoming increasingly absurd. It's unfortunate that people who have little to no knowledge of the situation are being characterized as sources. So some pretty strong pushback there against the press. Because, you know, you got a lot of things surfacing in a lot of places. you got things surfacing in the New York Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the British papers. Um, some of it, you know, I guess somebody reported... Um, about that uh, Gates, Bill Gates supposedly, allegedly, ostensibly, had confided in Epstein that um, he wasn't happy with his marriage or was unhappy with Melinda. 
Um, but no one is alleging that Gates, you know, went to any of the parties, any of the sex parties or anything like that. Just wanted to be clear. Uh, and you can be sure if something like that had happened, it would be coming out now. All right, let's go now to number two. Uh, had to deal with this yesterday on the air as more and more information came out. Uh, I believe I discussed on the podcast Friday that uh, Israeli news outlets were reporting that Israeli, a top Israeli military spokesman, uh, had misled, you know, you name it, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, uh, British organizations, you know, organizations around the world saying, uh, and this was back on Friday, that Israeli military forces were in Gaza, that there was a ground invasion of Gaza. There was no such invasion. That turned out not to be true. The military spokesman said, oh, you know, I screwed up. I made a mistake. I didn't get the right information. But what the Israeli news outlets are saying is that this was done deliberately as a matter of deception to make uh, the Gaza leaders and the Hamas people who carry out terror against Israel believe that the troops were coming to, to flush out some of the Gaza fighters who would then move to some of these tunnels that are dung from which they uh, launch attacks against Israel. And so representatives, journalists for the Times, the Journal, the Post, and others complained pretty vociferously that they felt that they had been, because they, you know, everybody wrote the stories, which had then to be corrected, uh, that they had been almost cast as, you know, people carrying out the military strategy when they claim that they were reporting what they were told. Also, over the weekend, you had the bombing of the building, uh, that tall tower that is known as a media tower in Gaza, which had um, offices of the Associated Press, also Al Jazeera, and I believe other news organizations as well. And, you know, the chief executive of the AP put out this outrage statement, shocked and horrified. There's been worldwide media condemnation. Now, in fairness, Israel gave an hour's worth uh, of evacuation warning, so everybody got out of the building including the AP people. There were no casualties from the bombing, but of course, it's a horrible thing uh, when you've had an office there for 15 years, the files, the photos, the archives, and everything else, to have your offices destroyed. The key thing here is that Israel contends that Hamas staffers and strategists on both the civilian and the military side used that building uh, and helped plot and plan attacks against Israel from that building. That raises the question, well, how could the AP be in that building and not know this if it was true? And by the way, Benjamin Netanyahu was on uh, CBS's Face the Nation yesterday and said that uh, his government had provided to U.S. intelligence officials uh, what was characterized as a smoking of evidence, smoking gun evidence of Hamas using that building. Now, in a later statement, the head of the AP said, we didn't know anything about this. We didn't know Hamas was there. It's, it's kind of the fog of war. But if Israel was using this to strike back at Hamas, you know, which Israel gave the Gaza Strip to back in 2006, and which, of course, started with the violent protest and the rockets uh, uh, against Israel, which, of course, has, uh, has resulted in pretty uh, massive retaliation uh, by Israeli warplanes and bombs, and that's resulting in a lot of criticism, also among some very liberal Democrats, uh, including those who don't have much sympathy for Israel and its situation in the Middle East. In any event, I had to deal with all of that. And um, again, the involvement of Hamas in that building changes it. I mean, otherwise, I mean, there were some people saying, well, this was 
Israel was pissed off at the press, or Israel bombed this building to get back at the AP and change the coverage and disrupt the coverage. Well, if that was the goal, it wasn't very successful. There's still worldwide coverage every single day. Uh, it's not as big of a television story as I reported Friday on Special Report, as you might have imagined, because there's been so much focus on all the domestic political stuff, Liz Cheney, Donald Trump, and all of that. Gas lines have, have been also has been, have been shorted, uh, has been underreported, in my view. Anyway, here's a related story about CNN, and we'll get to a much bigger story about CNN later in the podcast. CNN yesterday condemned a freelancer, a freelance contributor to the network, after a widely shared series of anti-Semitic pro-Hitler tweets were revealed. Uh, this person's name is Adil Raja, Pakistani journalist and producer based in Islamabad. Sparked outrage on social media. This is just yesterday afternoon. After he, ver- after he tweeted to his 80,000 followers that the world today needs a Hitler. Now that's pretty subtle, right? You have to really dig deep to understand the importance of what he's saying. Raja had previously voiced uh, displeasure with Israel's action in the uh, conflict with Hamas, referring to them as terrorists. That was back uh, about four days ago, as thousands of rockets were being fired uh, against the Jewish state from Gaza. And of course, Israel has retaliated. Israel always retaliates in any country. Uh, and the Biden administration is supporting Israel in this, would retaliate in response to what is an act of war doesn't mean the Israeli government can't be criticized. I, I just did that with the misleading guidance given to reporters about the non-existent invasion. So now you got social media people and they're digging up older tweets from this guy. Uh, here's one from 2014. Uh, it was a time when the World Cup uh, was being played and Germany had defeated Argentina. Uh, Raja says, the only reason I'm supporting Germany in the finals, Hitler was a German... And he did a good job. He did good with those Jews, exclamation point. Okay, I mean, this just reeks of anti-Semitic hatred. Hail Hitler, he tweeted the next day. All right, here's the statement. Ideal Raja has never been a CNN employee. As a freelancer, he has reported, contributed to some news gathering efforts from Islamabad. However, in light of these abhorrent statements, he will not be working with CNN again in any capacity. How... Was he able to say these things in the past and continue to write or contribute to CNN from Pakistan? It's almost, it's just mind-boggling. All right, let's move on to number three. I want to talk about uh, coronavirus. So uh, what broke uh, in the last uh, few days after uh, Joe Biden and the CDC said, yes, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outside. You don't have to wear a mask in most situations, even inside, if you're vaccinated. So here are some of the dilemmas that people are facing. So Walmart... Trader Joe's and Costco have all come out and said, and I'm sure there will be more companies and retailers that will say this, that vaccinated people in their stores no longer have to wear a mask. However, these companies also saying they will not be asking for any proof of vaccination. They will not be checking. So anybody walks into those stores, even roughly half of the country, uh, a little less than half of the country hasn't received any COVID-19 shots at all, can just say, well, I'm vaccinated and they're not going to be asked for any proof. Now, on the one hand, you know, I I can understand it would be rather unwieldy to be uh, checking every customer. On the other hand, you could have spot checks just to give some idea that that maybe you need to back up what you're saying. Um, My concern is, and I'm sure the companies have thought of this, you know, if anybody can walk in there 
and is not vaccinated and could spread the virus, and now nobody's wearing masks, that raises some obvious things to worry about. There was a fascinating column by Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal about the whole sort of mask debate. And I just want to read you a little bit of it because it made me look at this in a new way. I mean, we've known for a long, long time, I've talked about it, zillions of journalists have talked about it, how, uh, you know, when Donald Trump was president, masks became a political issue, a partisan issue. President Trump rarely wore one in public um, and had ambivalent or mixed things to say about mask wearing. And it's funny, at that time, the press was like, why won't Donald Trump wear a mask? Why is the White House uh, such a uh, super spreader site? And then in more recent times, when uh, Joe Biden wears a mask everywhere, including uh, outside, until he took it off the other day when he and Kamala Harris made this announcement, the president was increasingly saying, why is Joe Biden constantly wearing a mask when that's at odds with the CDC's own science? And, you know, Michelle Walensky was making the weekend rounds. She was with Chris Wallace and others, and she kept saying, oh, no, outside pressure had nothing to do with it. We just, in the last two weeks, we looked at all these science and we found it was okay not to wear a mask. Well, come on. That scientific evidence had been available for a long time. I believe that the changing media climate and the media pressure, and I said this on the air yesterday, had a lot to do with uh, the Biden administration finally taking this step. But anyway, back to the Peggy Newton column. She says there's a class element in the public debate. It's been there the whole time, but it's getting worse. Our news professionals the past three months have made plenty of room for medical and professionals warning of illness. Good. We needed it. It was news. They are not now paying an equal degree of sympathetic attention, says Peggy, to those living the economic story, such as the Dallas woman who pushed back, opened her hair salon, and was thrown in jail by a preening judge. He wanted an apology. She said she couldn't apologize for trying to feed her family. And this opens up the broader issue here. There is a class divide between those who are hardline on lockdowns and those who are pushing back. We see the professionals on one side, those that James Burnham called the managerial elite and that Michael then called the overclass. I think that's a good word. And regular people on the other. The overclass are highly educated, exert outsized influence as managers and leaders of important institutions, hospitals, companies, state houses, you know, politicians, journalists, you name it, scientists. The normal people aren't connected through professional or social lines, to power structures. And they have regular jobs, service worker, small business owner. Since the pandemic began, writes Noonan, the overclass has been in charge. Scientists, doctors, political figures, consultants, calling the shots for average people. But personally, they have less skin in the game. The National Institutes of Health scientist won't lose his livelihood over what's happened. Neither will the midday anchor. But the people who, you know, the cops, the firemen, the people who work in the grocery stores, people who are not part of this overclass, they personally feel it. And, and so they kind of believe that there's almost two choices here. Um, either we try to save a lot of lives and the economy hums along, or we try to save a lot of lives and the economy shuts down, and if the economy shuts down or is frozen or the unemployment rate skyrockets, they are the people who will get hurt. And that just, I thought provide some clarity for me in thinking about this. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number four, I mentioned CNN earlier. So this has been uh, reported in the business press the last couple of days. Today, it's actually official. AT&T, which took over um, the Warner Media Group, which includes CNN, which includes HBO, which includes 
other television networks, um, has agreed to do a merger with Discovery, major television programmer. They announced this early this morning. And the Warner Media Group, including CNN, will be spun off and merged with Discovery. John Berman, CNN Morning Echo, called this a stunning retreat by AT&T. It was only three years ago that AT&T said, oh, we want to get into the media business, and we can make this work, and all of that. So the transaction will combine HBO, which is also part of Warner Media, Warner Brothers Film Studio, CNN, other cable networks, I guess TBS would be part of that, with the reality-based channels on Discovery, which includes Oprah Winfrey's OWN, Food Network, Animal Planet, HGTV. Now, this is no minor combination. These two together, uh, and you throw in the sports networks like TBS and TNT, uh, creates a joint company uh, that uh, together had $40 billion in sales last year with a profit of more than $10 billion. That's bigger than Netflix. It's bigger than NBC Universal. It would be behind the Disney company as the second largest media company in the United States. But it does make you ask, what will happen to CNN to be thrown into this combined company? Um, the guy who runs Discovery now and has run it for 14 years, David Zaslav, will run this combined entity, this behemoth. Uh, this is renewed speculation about whether Jeff Zucker will stay on because Jeff Zucker uh, had announced that he will leave. His contract ends at the end of this year and he would leave, but he wasn't getting along with the Warner Media guy. Everything's like high school on some level. But I believe he might find a more congenial home at this new entity with the Discovery person, so maybe he would stick around. And all of that remains to be sorted out. All of that remains to be seen. But if you look at the history of CNN, you know, first, of course, it was launched and owned by Ted Turner, uh, then um, sold to Time Warner. That was a blockbuster merger. Then AOL, which was once an online behemoth, took over Time Warner. It was AOL Time Warner that owned CNN. Um, and on and on and on through other hands until AT&T and now basically Discovery. And AT&T will still own, obviously, a stake in that. All right, number five. And on a normal day, I would leave with this. We got so much stuff to deal with. So here's a pair of pieces in the, in the Washington Post that I think it tells you something about uh, the state of the Biden administration. President Biden's administration, by the middle of last week, writes the Post, was confronted with the images of long lines at gas pumps, which I said on the podcast and on Fox, um, you know, most of the media didn't really hold Biden responsible for this. I'm not talking about the cyber hacking by this criminal group apparently based in Russia. I'm talking about the gas shortages that resulted. Also, as we talked about earlier, the Middle East erupted in violence. Headlines are warning about fears of inflation that could threaten the economy. Uh, Biden on Thursday said, don't panic. Well, what he was talking about was telling drivers, don't panic and fill up your tanks and lots of plastic bags with gasoline because that would worsen the shortage, which I believe happened. But it kind of captured his message, according to the Post, on all of these crises. A president who prides himself on choreography and planning has seen in recent days a burst of unexpected events that showcase the need for political agility. Now, the White House has approached the problems with calm and caution. That's a good thing even if some allies want Biden to be more forceful. Now, here's the key graph. As Biden and his aides seek to project steadiness, many Republicans are offering an alternative interpretation, as you might expect. The world is increasingly engulfed in chaos on Biden's watch. As gas prices surge, crime rates rise, border crossings grow, and that is an area where he does bear some responsibility, a lot of it, in fact. 
and the cost of consumer goods threatens to spike. The dueling messages have created a kind of a Rorschach test for voters. Do they see Biden as an agent of competence or chaos? Now, Biden aides saying, yeah, we've got all these problems, but he's, we're handling it fine. So here's, here's Kate Benningfield, the uh, communications director for the White House. If the start of the week was, supposed, was supposed chaos, look at where the week ended up, she says. By the end of the week, he's saying the pipeline is online. It's going to be back up to capacity soon. We've gotten so many vaccines and arms that you don't have to wear a mask in most instances anymore. We're not interested in a debate about competency versus chaos. Uh, but it's clear that this is a challenge for the White House, the Post goes on to say. Now, here's the other Post story. Everybody knows the border has been a mess, all these unaccompanied minors and so forth. So the Washington Post reported a couple of days ago when there was new data showing an, a 20-year high in April for illegal migration into the U.S., what the Customs and Border Patrol Agency did was slip it into an after-hours news relief. No briefing, no questions from reporters, it was a departure from the Trump administration approach, interesting. Um, his administration is now looking to break with Trump measurement standards. This is fascinating. At a time when immigration ranks as one of their worst polling issues. U.S. agents are making about 6,000 arrests and detentions along the border each day. But also what they're doing is they're touting these numbers about fewer and fewer unaccompanied minors being in Border Patrol facilities. Well, that is true. They've been able to move almost all of them out. But what they've done is they've moved them to HHS facilities, which I guess are somewhat nicer, but still it doesn't make the problem go away. And so uh, here's Tyler Moran, top Biden immigration advisor, saying on the record to the Washington Post, apprehensions don't tell the full story and getting to zero is not a measure of success. Republican critics, of course, are saying that, uh, you know, this is all Biden's fault and they're not turning people back at the border, and all of that. So what they're doing is moving the goalposts. Remember how they refused to call it a crisis and refused to call it a crisis, and then Politico put out a memo saying, well, we're with the AP. We're not going to call it a crisis. Well, I don't know if the press is buying into this new, well, you know, the number of apprehensions is not a measure of success, but it clearly is an attempt to redefine what success is at a time when the Biden administration is not having very good success at the border. And here's the bonus story number six, which now makes me think that we're going to spend the next four years unpacking and unraveling what actually happened in the last four years during the Trump administration. This is an exclusive by Jonathan Swan in Axios. It starts out this way. Uh, John McEntee, one of Donald Trump's most favorite aides, handed retired Army Colonel Douglas McGregor a piece of paper with a few notes scribbled on it. Uh, by the way, this was November 9th, 2020, just days after Donald Trump lost his re-election bid. And McEntee said uh, to this uh, aide, uh, this is what the president wants you to do. And there was a numbered list. One, get out of Afghanistan. Two, get us out of Iraq and Syria. Three, complete the withdrawal from Germany. Four, get us out of Africa. Now, that's pretty stunning. McGregor had just been offered a post as senior advisor to Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller. Uh, McEntee, of course, was very close to Trump, had his ear. Even so, McGregor was astonished. He told McEntee he doubted they could do all these things before January 20th. I mean, these are major foreign policy decisions. And then to get them all done in the less than three months before Joe Biden was to become president, then do as much as you can, McEntee replied. In McGregor's opinion, Miller, the acting Pentagon chief, couldn't act on his own authority to execute a 
total withdrawal of U.S. military forces from Afghanistan because he was only an acting Pentagon chief. Um, if this was for real, McGregor said to McEntee, he was going to need an order from the president. The one-page memo was delivered to Christopher Miller's office two days later. The order arrived seemingly out of nowhere, and its instructions, signed by Trump, were stunning. All U.S. forces out of Somalia by December 31st. All U.S. forces out of Afghanistan by January 15th. Now, by the way, as you know, Joe Biden has said in the next few months, by September 11th, actually, he wants all forces out of Afghanistan. So he actually is in rare agreement with the former guy on this. Miller wondered when seeing this, remember, this is the guy who was running the Pentagon at the time, what the F is this? Miller was a former Green Beret. He had been uh, directed the National Counterterrorism Center. And, you know, Trump had quickly tapped him because he wanted to get rid of Mark Esper, who had been the defense secretary at the time of the election. He was fired by tweet. He'd been on the job for three days. News of this quickly spread around the Pentagon. The top military brass, including Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley, were appalled. This was not the way to conduct policy. Obviously, they and other sources are telling this to Jonathan Swan. So the White House was called. Counsel Pat Cipollone was called. Cipollone told the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, they had no idea what the order was, where it had come from, uh, and on and on and on. Now, many would rally to push back, and sometimes openly and in coordination, and other times discreetly, uh, so that Trump administration officials had to turn to classified intercepts from the National Security Agency for clues. It's a much, much, much longer piece. I can't fully do it justice here. Uh, it just shows you, on the one hand, you know, when, when there's a presidential election and an incumbent president is defeated, it is certainly not unusual for that president to try to complete certain things before he leaves office. That's normal, right? You know, especially things you've been working on. Um, you, you know that your successor, maybe if your successors of a different party, such as happened when Jimmy Carter lost to Ronald Reagan, such as happened when George H.W. Bush lost to Bill Clinton, you know, you try to solidify certain things or sign certain agreements. And, and I don't have any great problem with that. But this is on a whole different order of magnitude to complete these plots, whether you agree that they were right or wrong, and you know, Trump ran against forever wars, and 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 I think a lot of people agree with him, wanted to be out of Syria, wanted to be out of Afghanistan, even Joe Biden agreeing on that, uh, some of these other places, but to expect the entire Pentagon and all these military officials and all these civilian defense officials to get this done under an acting defense secretary in less than three months, it is mind-boggling, which is what makes the peace so interesting. There's a lot more I could get to, but you've got a life. I've got some other work to do. Thank you for listening again. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. The segments are all online. You can find them on Twitter and on Facebook, certainly on my pages. And you can subscribe here at many, many places, including Apple iTunes. We'll see you back here tomorrow with more Buzzbeat. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.